even when we practice, whatever we implement is trying to utilize a player's strengths, not their weaknesses. And that gives them confidence. My rule is 75-25. Three quarters good, 25%. Where do you need to improve? Welcome to Building Teams with Matt Nunn. As a coach and as a leader of 150 people, Matt loves to build and lead strong teams. From CEOs to professional athletes, join him as he has honest, candid conversations about how to cultivate strong teams. Proudly presented by Nun Media, Australia's largest media buying agency. Hello, and thanks for joining me. I'm Matt Nunn. On today's episode of Building Teams, I'll be speaking with Brendan Joyce. Brendan is one of the most successful coaches in the history of the Australian National Basketball League with a career spanning over 40 years. He's led teams to the Olympics, won Coach of the Year many times and recently in Taiwan and also works as a high-performance consultant. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Brendan. Thanks for joining me. You've just come off a uh, championship year as Coach of the Year in Taiwan. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Matt. A little different uh, coaching in another country, but it was fantastic. Obviously, you've had a plethora of experience in coaching and building teams and leadership, so we'd really like to sort of see your journey and, and explore some of that. Can you start off just by perhaps telling us a little bit how you were brought up, your upbringing into sport? Yeah, it's uh, interesting. It was mainly through a friend. I mean, not like most people, I, I think it's, um, you know, their mates play the sport. I mean, we're all brought up on footy, really. I'm a footy guy. I was living in the inner suburbs of Melbourne. I was born in the Collingwood Flats. That's why I'm a Collingwood supporter, mate. We won't hold that against um, you. <laughs> <laughs> and then we moved to Richmond. But I grew up in Richmond and then uh, moved out to Broadmeadows West uh, later on. But when I was in Richmond, I went to school at St. John's East Melbourne. And this is in the 60s. This is uh, late 60s. And we all had a school footy team, and there was a guy that loved basketball. His name was Peter Fitzpatrick, and he got some great names. You probably people would know, uh, like my brothers. Oh, I had older brothers; they all played basketball. We started a basketball team, and uh, Robbie Cadu, famous name in basketball, yeah, he started yeah, Robbie yeah. off. It was Robbie's um, little brother that got me uh, interested in teaching me a layup in the schoolyard, and said, "Oh, you should play." and so I played for the school team at St. John's East Melbourne and yep. then I got recruited to play Basketball Victoria in a Basketball Victoria team, which was called the Presbyterian Wildcats, changed their name to Heidelberg Wildcats and then became the Nullawood Inspectors. So, you know, that's how I ended up playing with the Nullawood Inspectors and from that junior basketball, senior basketball, uh, I ended up captaining the, the Nullawood Inspectors in the NBL, uh, played with the Westside Melbourne Saints as well and then back to the Inspectors at a different time. So spent 13 years in the NBL, um, lost the grand final, thought we were going to play in plenty of them. There's a story behind that, probably for another day. Uh, and then I got into coaching. I thought I was done. And, um, you know, but at the same time while I was um, playing, uh, I was an electrician for eight years. And my wife said to me, why don't you, you know, um, go back to school because you want to, I wanted to try out for the Olympic team. So I gave up work and committed to trying to make the Olympic team. And, uh, but then I got bored with just training every day. I needed something else in my life. And I teach this to, I talk to this to players today about, and we all know now, um, players need something else in their life. So I ended up going back to uni, mate. So I've got a management degree from Victoria University. So that's one of the best things I ever did. If I didn't have that, I don't think I'd be as good a coach. And that's probably helped with coaching. I didn't know I was going to be a coach and it was more for a job after basketball. So, you know, and, and when I finished playing, I had a, a year or two with the Brisbane Bullets, retired, 
went and uh, coached Ballarat for three years where I met you, Matt. Yep. It was a long time you. ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And won a couple of championships. And I was approached by three NBL teams. And I ended up choosing the Illawarra Hawks. And uh, that pretty much started my coaching journey. That's pretty much in a, you know, in a nutshell what happened. Often when people think of a professional coach, they imagine scenes from movies where the coach has their team doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things at 3am in the morning to get their game ready. What does a day in the life of a coach look like for you? Yeah, I think the most important thing for me like on a practice day is that practice, there's productivity in the practice. You know, It's meaningful versus meaningless. Whether it be an individual session, whether it be a coaching session, I think uh, everything you do must be meaningful. More is not better to me. You can overtrain, as we know today. I say to my players, when we go, we go. And I try to make everything meaningful rather than meaningless. And what I mean by that, there's a lot of people that do individual work with players and they haven't dribbled the ball through their legs 10 times or 20 times. And you're not going to, you don't do that in the game. So I'm a big believer in whatever it will be individual. Every minute you do at practice is vital and it's got to be productive to how you play the game. Uh, otherwise, I see it as a waste of time. That's one of the big things, in my opinion. And what's the strangest thing you've ever had a team do for training? I'm not sure about strange. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I'm probably not one of those guys that thinks of things like that to have players do strange things. You know, you, you have different things like I might have them play a bit of cricket, play a bit of footy for a bit of variety and have a bit of fun and some games. I usually leave that stuff to, actually to the guys that warm up the team. And, uh, yeah, they come up with some great little team games. But uh, but for me, when I like I said, when I get on the court, it's all business and it's 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 productivity and utilising, you know, that time. So, but we allow time and I, I try to obviously have some exercises or competition and practices where you make it enjoyable. But to be honest, man, I don't know if I've ever done anything strange personally. I read a recent article on Focus in Taiwan uh, and they referred to you as an iron-blooded coach. Is that a fair assessment of your style? Well, what does iron-blooded mean? I was trying to work out what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's a couple of things that happen in Taiwan. Uh, they know I'm very demanding, and I think most people that play under me know that. I'm demanding but very fair. My demands are that people must – I demand that they believe in themselves. You would know that, uh, to try and instill confidence. And going back to what you talked about, you know, preparing a training session – for a game, even when we practice, we make sure we practice and we, whatever we implement is trying to utilise a player's strengths, not their weaknesses, and that gives them confidence. So, you know, I say to players, you know, what do you do well? Bring that to the table, and I think that helps, you know, if they're focused on, on what they do well. You've had a huge career and have led many teams to championships and success. I'd love to know from your point of view what makes a great team and what are the building blocks? Yeah, I mean, this is where I know you want me to be concise. I could talk for hours about <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah, and I just touched on it before with the, with the previous question. Look, first of all, you select players. You've got to have some good players. And as you know, sometimes as coaches, we don't have the best players. I certainly have been in that situation many, many times. You know, I haven't had, I've coached teams that haven't had the most money or smaller budgets. So no one cares about that. Bottom line is, you know, er, you know, boards will say, look, we haven't got the best players. We don't have the budget. We don't understand. We understand that, sorry. But then when you lose games, and I've experienced this firsthand, you lose too many games, you're going to get fired. That's the bottom line. When you've got a smaller budget, a bigger budget, I'm talking about professional sport here, you know. We're, we're at the professional level. So you hear all these things, all these comments about, yeah, we'll support you. 
We want to support you to build the team. We've got a young team. I've been through it all. And I, and I, and I actually mentor or provide advice, believe it or not, to some AFL coaches every now and then that are going through hard times. Because having been through that, you, you need good players. But if you haven't got the best players, all right, I'm probably going off on a tangent like I, what coaches do sometimes. If you haven't got the best players, you better know what you're doing. All right? So, and obviously, if you're a young coach, that's a little bit more difficult because you don't have the experience. So for me, you've got to have the right style of play. Now, what is the right style of play? I know you've got a basketball background, but in it, if you've got a style, you know, coaches have systems and style of plays. For me, my style of play is flexible. I look at what the player can do and I try and allow that player to do what he does or she does, because I've coached women, within the system. And if you allow them to do what they do well, that breeds confidence. Uh, they feel good about themselves. If you're trying to to get them to do something individually or if your structure or system doesn't allow them to play to their strengths, they will fail and they will lose confidence. So style of play is crucial and that must match the individual strength of the player you've got and the team. You know, and, and obviously that needs to vary the team. The style of play with the team must have some versatility because you have all these different players that have different strengths. You know, some players are better than others. Some players, in certain instances, the ball, you know, that particular player might get more shots than the other player. But I do encourage everybody, and I say to them, when the sun shines, you've got to take that opportunity. And what that means is when you're in your area of strength, be aggressive. So style of play, uh, you've played under me, whether it's offensively or defensively, I really encourage players to be aggressive when they've got that opportunity to play to their strengths. And I think that breeds confidence. The big one, another big one, um, okay, so you've got the style of play. So that's not all. You've got to have good team chemistry. And it's a word used a lot today. And I think I've been ahead of the time on that for over 20 years. And that comes from my playing experience. You know, I played on some coaches, you know, in the early days in the NBL in the 80s, everything centered around the two imports. And we would get to the playoffs and they'd shut down the imports and nobody could step up because they weren't conditioned to step up. So part of my philosophy as a coach is, Shared responsibility, yeah, play to your strengths, not just your imports. I mean, these days our talent level in Australia, some of our Australians are better than the imports anyway, and the same in Taiwan. I know that philosophy existed in Taiwan. I had all the Taiwan kids saying, hey, well, I said to them, you know, this is what you do well, make sure you do it. And that grows in confidence, and if everybody becomes aggressive, you're harder to guard. So, And that develops team chemistry, but it's not just on how you play. It's Then it's about the player. Players do get more shots. Sometimes you'll select a player that's not a great offensive player, but they're your best defensive player, and they've just got to hold up an end on offense. So they're a role, they've got their role. So, you know, when we talk about team chemistry, for me it's about obviously placing those players in the, in the area of strength as an individual and as a team, then getting them to buy into their role. That's pretty important. You know, a lot of times players will try and prove that, you know, you might say, well, this is your strength, stay away from this area. But, they, you know, a lot of players' egos will get in the way and they'll try and prove to you or everybody else that they can do something that they don't do well, right? So it's just trying to keep them locked into that. And that, that, that's actually, then we're focused on the common goal. That means, you know, the common goal is to be successful, right? As a team, everybody gets rewards. So just trying to keep the egos in check. And that's through team chemistry, role play, culture. You know, this is the word everybody uses today, culture. And I love what Kobe Bryant says. We can't just put our arms around each other and kumbaya and we're great and all that. You know, we're going, to be, we're going to have a great culture and we're going to be mates. I mean, it's about accountability. There's another word. So you have culture uh, and, it's you know, you set up a value system. Now, that value system, coach really knows what needs to be done. 
but again, to get by and you involve the players in that decision-making. And that was a challenge for me in Taiwan because of the, the differences probably just in lifestyle and decision-making. You know, Taiwan's closer to China. You know, you're the boss. You tell them what to do, they do. So I tried to be taken, you know, I guess, educate Taiwan about how we do it in Australia. And the way I got around that was I said, hey, we've got Taiwanese players, but we've got two Americans. I've got a Lithuanian. I've got a uh, Filipino-American and I'm an Aussie, so we're not a Taiwan team. So I'm not just going to come in and tell you what to do. I want you involved in some of the decision-making here and I want you to understand that we're not just going to win through strategy. We need to have a good culture. So we need to be a good, have good team chemistry. So that was an education process and was really interested at the beginning of that in Taiwan. They all just sat there and said nothing. But by the end of the year, halfway through, then players were having input. I'd have individual meetings with them. They were more vocal. So, you know, I've probably mentioned a few things. I'm just trying to think style of play, team chemistry, and under those things, you know, different things come in under play, like team chemistry, role. I've talked about accountability. And let's not forget resilience. They're probably, you know, I could give you seven or eight, but they're probably the big ones, resilience, because you're going to have setbacks. You have to have the ability to bounce back. What makes a great team captain? As you know, probably in many years ago, they selected the best players or the most popular players. I mean, these days we have a system. I have a system anyway uh, in trying to establish the leadership. I think you need more than one captain. I, I prefer co-captains. Some people are against that because I think you need more than one leader. So what makes a great leader? What makes a great captain? If you put the right value system in place and not just me or you as a coach or uh, one person, again, you ask the players what's important. What, what do they want in a leader? And usually they'll say a great communicator. And so for me, that, that, that's number one. And for me as a coach, going back to your question, I probably missed that one because I just jumped straight in and said style of play. You better be a good communicator. And communicator is not just talking, it's listening, all right? You, you have to be a listener because the other thing that you know, all the years I've coached, what come, the feedback is from players, they want a leader to be approachable, which means they listen, right? That mean they feel comfortable. Obviously, they want you to step up to the plate, I guess, when you need to. So it doesn't mean you have to be vocal all the time, but you have to be competent as well, I think, to a certain extent in what you do to be a leader as well. But what we do, you know, or what I've done from a strategy point of view, and I know many teams in Australia do this uh, today, um, you develop a value system of what you think is important to a leader. And then you have a period of time where you you have those players go through the process, uh, whether it be pre-season and um, or it could be the course of a couple of years, you know, because you change your captaincies. But say you're starting out a new team, it's always very difficult. And I've done that. I've started out a new team. We didn't select a captain of the Gold Coast when I was first there. It was till, wasn't till halfway through the season. We, we put different players in leadership positions. We put players in and we thought had the potential to lead, not now, but we put them in pairs. And, you know, what we how we went about selecting it was we determined leadership values, as I said before, approachable, good communicator, lead by example, good person off the court, not just on the court. And then all those players are measured and then all the players and coaches would vote who would be the leader. I've talked about what makes a good leader, but I think the process of how you select the leader is important too. Your job comes with a lot of pressure, bad press, board members, and I know at one point someone even threw a brick through your window. What are some of your strategies for dealing with stress and the accountability for your job? Yeah, there's always pressure at some stage. Uh, Now I've got to a point where I just go into a situation, if it's there, it's there. You know, I, I guess I certainly handle it and manage it better now because of my experience. I felt that I was pretty good as a player under pressure. Uh, and I think going back to that question about, you know, iron-blooded, 
I, I think it meant two, it may have meant two things. I think it was, he knows I'm demanding, but I think we were in close games. Going back to that question, our team was prepared. And I think I'm good under pressure and we won a lot of close games and we came from behind. So, and I think iron blooded means what might be that you're strong, I guess, to make decisions. Going back to that. Uh, and, and in what you're saying, or, you know, this question right now, I think is, is, is pretty important. So you go through stages in your career. Now, when I had the brick through the window, that was an interesting one. And it's true. Uh, I was in coaching Illawarra in the first two years. We really struggled. I, we didn't have much money. We had, I had young players and a couple of older players that were very good. And going back to the board, we had a meeting. I said to them, I'm going to play the younger players because we're not winning anyway. Yeah. So I'm going to play the younger players for the future. And they said, yeah, that's fantastic, right? And then we lost about six or seven in a row. <laughs> <laughs> it then, wasn't so fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And, um, you know, even in the local newspaper, you know, only a few people know this. They wrote an article on the back page. You talked about the media. Should he stay or should he go? As soon as that goes onto the back page, obviously the community is against you. You should go because <laughs> <laughs> you're not winning. And it was during that – when that happened – Early morning, obviously, I've got the four kids. They're growing up now. Someone drove up and they threw a um, a brick through the window, and it was. I was pretty angry because I was, but we were lucky. It was like we, you know, because I had four kids. I had two girls on one side and a girl on the other. I had the three girls in one room because they were just little. So we were very. I run out and they, you know, I run out of the house and they just drove off. And and then my wife, obviously Joanne, who you know, she's like, let's get out of here. They're not respected. They're not appreciated. I'm going through the board meetings, uh, whether I should keep my job. You know, I'm just not a person to walk away and give up. I had another year to go after. I said, no, I'm not quitting. We've got to get through this. And I just made some really hard decisions, Matt. And I, I, I talk about this to young coaches or coaches that are struggling right now. I remember saying it to Tony Shaw when he had a tough time because he's a close mate, coaching Collingwood. I looked at it and I went, well, who, who's, really, who's really playing hard? Who's giving it everything? Who's not really Who's not really in, you know? That day after that, I walked out and I just played the players that were given everything. I looked at the players that some of the board members thought they were pretty good, but they weren't. Some of the older players, I played them less. So that put me under the gun even more, right? That put me under the gun even more. But all of a sudden, we won four in a row, <laughs> you know? And so we finished the season strong, but we're still down the bottom. And there was a, you know, a meeting to say whether I should go or stay. And I, I'm going to mention his name, and I, I think he's become a friend, John Scott. He was on the board, and I, I believe he was pretty strong in saying, we've got to give this young you know, guy, he's had success as a player. We can see the improvement. We've got to let him see out his contract. <laughs> and he rang me that night, though, and he said, Chop, he called me Chop, and he said, mate, you better have a good year next year because I don't think I'll be able to help you. <laughs> <laughs> and we won the last game by a point, and as you know, Matt, uh, we had a new owner signed signed for another two years, and we won a championship a couple of years later. So that's a long story, but you talk about I want coaches to know the pressure, and the people should know the pressure's real out there, and some bad things can happen to coaches. And this is what I'm talking about: resilient and being strong. As a coach, I know it's important that the team believes in your vision. Do you have any advice on how to get buy-in from the team, especially when you may be walking into an established lineup uh, and you're the new guy? Yeah, well, I have an advantage. I'm walking in as a new guy, as an experienced coach that's a winner. So I think that's a big advantage. Like, even when I coach in Taiwan, they all go and check your background, right? And they go, oh, coach, you want a championship here? Oh, you want a medal with the Opals? So they know. So the experience, I can walk in, and this is what I – I don't want to sound arrogant. I know how to win. I know how to win. I've got the runs on the board. 
and I have structures and strategies so I know how to win. So that's an advantage. But if you haven't coached before, then you probably have – you may have an advantage because of your playing experience. So they've seen that you've been a hard worker or you've been a part of a successful team. So usually you'll take part of that as a young coach because you've learned on what it takes to win through that experience. All right. So usually you, you carry all those different things. And I think there's an advantage of playing the game. We see coaches, obviously, we want to certainly, you know, encourage coaches or people that haven't played the game to get involved and learn. But I still think if you've played the game and you've been under pressure, it's an advantage because when you're asking players to do certain things, you know how they feel. All right. But I'll, remember, I was a young coach. I didn't have any uh, runs on the board uh, before I coached Ballarat. But I think they selected me. I went into, I remember the first interview, and I had a philosophy, and I had four things. I had, I said, I said my team's going to be prepared. My people are going to be committed. They'll never give up. I can't remember what the fourth one was. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's still part of my philosophy today. I'm just off the top of my head. I'm trying to think of the fourth one. Um, I think it was style of play. Yeah. So now I have eight things. We talked about resilience. We talked about accountability, all these words. But I think, um, you know, whether you play the game or not, then you have to study it and you have to you have to have the knowledge because you'll be hit with questions. Players will hit you with questions. And if you haven't got the answers, you, you, you better say, okay, well, what do you think? And, and some people will see that as a sign of weakness, but then that allows the player input. But at the same time, you, you, you do have to have some answers, otherwise you're going to lose respect because it's about respect. And it's, we talk about relationships and everyone says – I go, I go back to Kobe Bryant, Kumbaya. I, I think your relationship's got to be about respect, not not friends. And if a friendship develops out, it's usually after, after you're coaching. Because it's hard to have a friendship with a player because you usually got to make them accountable. And that's always a tough situation. Now, feedback, you know, from definitely a corporate point of view can be a point of learning. You know, from a coaching standpoint, having coached with you, feedback can be really hard to deliver sometimes and equally as hard to take. Do you have any tips on how you deliver feedback um, effectively? Yeah, I have a consistent uh, process. You know, you talk, you're talking about process. The process about style of play is a process about development team chemistry. Well, there's a process for how you deliver feedback. And I think not just feedback, but deliver information, okay? So we can watch video. We could instruct on the court. So that's physical, video is visual. And I have an individual meeting with a player. So that's verbal, one-on-one, and I ask them to usually prepare and write some things down about some goals, about how they'll play. So that leads then to, you know, when I have that consistent meeting with each player once a week, it'll be for 15 minutes, not just talking about off the court. Now, I'm talking about being a professional coach here. It's obviously difficult for an amateur coach, but even an amateur coach, you can still grab a bloke for two minutes and say, here you go, what's been happening? Oh, I saw this. But I think the most important thing in the professional environment is is to live a positives first. <laughs> Make sure the person feels good about themselves. There's got to be something positive there, right? There'll be an odd moment where something might be really bad, but I, my rule is 75-25, all right? Three quarters good, 25%, where do you need to improve? Not necessarily bad. I, I say, where do you need to improve? I don't like using the words where you went wrong. This is where you need to improve. Again, this is this positive mindset, I guess, if you want to call it, trying to be in touch with making sure your players stay confident. So there's a process on how I deliver that. I have arguments with my video coaches sometimes because they want to show everything that went wrong. 
And I go, no, show them what they did right. Show them what they did right. People learn better by seeing what they do right, not what they do wrong. And they obviously do need to see some things wrong. But if you continually show someone or talk to them about how bad they are, what they do wrong, then they're going to continue to fail because you're going to have a loss of confidence. In those meetings, when you, you spoke about goals or, or key performance indicators, would you have a yearly goal or KPI or would that be would that change weekly in a weekly meeting? Or what process would you follow with that? You know, the mission is to win the championship. The goal, major goal is to win the championship. And then the smaller goal is to win so many goals to get to the playoffs. But then you break it down to the game, right, the KPIs. And they're, they're pretty simple things, but and, and they're simple things on paper, and, and that's the sell to the players because most of those goals in order to win, and you hear this before, you want good offense, you want productive and efficient offense, but if you don't defend, you don't win. But the easiest goals to achieve, believe it or not, are the, the ones that people aren't focused on, the defensive end. And the reason why I say easiest because it's totally more about effort than skill. So if you've got high effort, you, you defend, you uh, contest shots, which requires a lot of effort, one-on-one focus or team focus on defense. Uh, then you rebound. I mean, a, Chuck Daly is a famous coach of Troy Pistons, and I talked to my Taiwan guys about this during the year. We've got to be the best defensive team and the best defensive rebounder because they're two of the three goals that guarantee you winning the championship. Taking care of the ball in basketball guarantees you winning the championship. Those three goals in itself. And then usually that leads to efficient offense. And anyway, it doesn't mean you neglect offense, but they're goals that we focus on. But also, when I break down the goals of each player, I look at their strengths and I say, what do you do well? Okay, you're an assist guy. So then I better put that player in a situation where he can create or she can create, get assists. Okay, you're a good scorer inside. I better put that player inside. So I would say to him, run the floor you know, hard every time. If you don't run the floor hard every time, understand I'll take you out. There will be two things. If you don't run the floor hard, it means you're not playing hard enough, so I'm taking you out. Well, the second thing is you're tired. So give it everything you've got. And the only time I really should take you out in that situation is when you're tired. So this all happens in the, the communication of just setting the goals. So so your goals are, you know, there's team goals and then there's individual goals that correlate with what the team needs. And that's that's a balancing act because, you know, because obviously the players have their own view on what their goals, what they want to achieve for their own benefits as well. What's one thing you've implemented in your life that's been the biggest impact on success? I think what my dad said to me, what my grandfather said to me, grandfather was a prisoner of war in Changi. He went to two world wars and uh, he just survived Changi. When we went on another month, he would have died. I've seen the photographs. I remember him and my mum and my dad. They just say, never give up. Never give up. Just keep going. So, and I've had a lot of setbacks. You know that. And I think, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be, I'm 60 years old, I'm still coaching. I think the other thing is you want to, uh, trying to keep improved. They'd say to me, keep trying to improve. Like when I went to university, mum was wrapped. She couldn't believe it. I was a sparky for eight years. Um, and she goes, you're going to go back to school. You're sure you've got a good job, but you know, this is pretty good. But I think aspiring to get better. And it's, and, and I, I, you know, my wife has played a big role in that. I, she said to me, um, if you're bored with just training every day, you need something else in your life. And I think, oh, me, me go back to you. Know, I said to her, man, I'm not smart enough. She goes, come on. It's not about just whether you're smart enough. It's about whether you're committed. So, you know, we have people close to us that push us and support us, like everyone, and we must remember that as coaches and as parents, like everyone needs something, someone to believe in them. And um, as much as we can, we've got to support and provide assistance to keep encouraging our kids or whatever to believe in themselves. So I think I got that. But going back, it was about never giving up and trying to get better. And I think 
that stems from our, our family support a lot of the time, really. I had some coaches as well, Collingwood D, Barry Barnes, you know, in their own way. They always steal those sort of things. But the thing that jumped out of me then, Matt, probably the biggest thing was never give up, and that came from family. What advice would you have for young Australian coaches when we look at the NBL at the moment? Um, we see a lot of teams bringing in American coaches, which obviously limits the opportunities for young Australian coaches. Is there any advice there? And obviously you've been in the NBL for 14 or 15 years, won championships there. You've gone to three or four Olympics and you've had to go overseas to work. So what advice can you give to young younger coaches to whether should they pursue their dreams in Australia or look overseas or, or how would you advise them? Yeah, the first thing I'd say is whatever job you're doing now, do that job to the best of your ability. Because if you get distracted and you get focused in other areas, you're not going to do that job to the best of your ability. So you achieve success at the level that you're doing now. We've gone through this before. When I started coaching that, I'll go back and check, but I think it was 14 teams. I reckon we had seven or eight American coaches. There wasn't a lot of Australian jobs then. And then during my time, for a period of time, there was less American coaches to the point where there was like three and 11 Australian coaches. I don't like what's happening. I'll say it right now. I don't like it. I don't know how that goes down because we don't have a lot of jobs in Australia and we have a lot of good talent here. We have a lot of good coaches. I think it's um, promotion and marketing at times. Some of the coaches they've brought out, they've got, you know, come and gone within a year or two. They haven't been that good. They've got the G League tag or they've been on the end of an NBA bench. They've only got a specific role in those teams. So they might be good at that, but being a head coach and coaching a whole team and being in charge, we've just, you know, we've talked about an array of things. They don't have that experience. But we have kids here or younger coaches, uh, experienced coaches, like it's not just me that's gone overseas, Andre Lamana, Sean Dennis, some of the guys I've had as assistants. The opportunities just aren't here. So, but we're respected. Even when I go to NBA teams, you know, they take care of us. It just depends on the situation. But right now, I think we're just going through one of those stages again, I don't know what the reason is, whether it's marketing, promotion, to say, oh, we've, we've got an American coach, but we've got plenty of Australian coaches that is good, if not better, than many of the coaches they're bringing out. Those coaches, stay at it, do the best you can, and just keep building your success and keep building your resume, and surely someone's going to take note. Excellent advice. Now, it's time for the buzzer beaters. So I've got five rapid-fire questions to wrap up the interview to answer very quickly. So we're going to put you under the pump here. All right, let's go. Which book has had the biggest impact on you? Learned Optimism. Great book. Read it. Your favourite player? Michael Jordan. Your favourite coach? Chuck Daly. Okay. It's an interesting one. Oh, no longer with us. No longer with us. Read his book. How do you celebrate a win? Depends when it is. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are in Taiwan. They want to celebrate every week. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you saw it at the grand final. So I know this is rapid, but we finished the season on top and they've crowned me with ice. And I'm like, hang on, we haven't won anything yet. And, I, and they've taught me a lesson. I think I need to celebrate more. But okay, how do I celebrate a win? Focus on the next one. But after the championship, I'll have a few drinks and take it all in. Excellent. Where do you keep your medals and trophies? <laughs> Not in a good place. <laughs> in the garage. <laughs> Some in the drawer and in the garage. <laughs> if you were Prime Minister for the day, what's the first thing you'd change? I haven't got a rapid answer because there's a lot need change. And I certainly think uh, now I'm vaccinated, but I think everybody has the right of choice in many things and there's a lot happening in the US right now you know I think women should have the right so I think I think it's have, have the ability to have a choice on all matters 
And I think the government took that away for us, vaccination. I, if you don't want to get vaxxed, that's your decision. You shouldn't be punished for it. Whatever happens, you know, things like that. I, I'd say freedom of choice. Well, that's all we have time for. So thanks so uh, much for joining me, Brendan Joyce. It's been a pleasure. No worries, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Building Teams podcast. For more information about Matt and Nun Media, visit nunmedia.com.au. Follow the show for future episodes and leaving a review or rating helps others find the podcast. 